Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, March 13, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. Tonight is show number 269, and our guest tonight is Mr. Rob Steenberg. He is the Acton Lead Space Weather Forecaster at the Space Weather Prediction Center there in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, Rob's also experienced the big blizzard that uh, has been making headlines today uh, in the weather world. So happy to have Rob on as we are talking about uh, space weather. We also have guest panelist, Miss Megan Rust. She is a resident student at Duke University. So uh, we also want to mel- uh, welcome Megan and Rob to our program. And we are glad that you are also joining us. Now, we know the big story about Facebook being down today, so we're not streaming on Facebook Live, but we're still streaming on Periscope and on our YouTube page, so we encourage you, if you have any questions or comments throughout the show, to uh, send those via our Periscope or our YouTube link. We'll be uh, give some information out about how you can follow uh, the uh, Space Weather Prediction Center and how you can get more information about space weather. So we're very happy to have Rob and Megan joining us tonight. Uh, since we are off to a little bit of a late start, we're going to push our new segment back to a little later in the program. So we will kick off tonight's interview. And Rob, uh, thank you for joining us. We're uh, happy to have you. Uh, we'll get into space weather here in just a second, but uh, tell us how it's been there in Colorado, a big uh, big snowstorm uh, affecting uh, much of the uh, the state. Uh, how have you fared today? Uh, well, here in Longmont, it hasn't been too bad. We've had uh, winds up above 50 miles per hour and uh, some snowfall, uh, probably about three inches or so. Uh, further east, however, uh, the situation is a lot more dramatic. Uh, out on the eastern plains, they've had wind gusts up over 80 miles an hour. Um, there's been snow drifts reported to five feet. Um, they've closed most of the highways in that part of the state, um, and people are being rescued as we speak. So it's, it's been an exceptional storm. It really has. And we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, towards the end of our program, as we do our roundtable discussion, I think Chris and Evan have a few uh, images that they've uh, seen throughout uh, the Twitter world today. So we'll share those, but Rob, our first question to you, since you're a first time guest with us, um, you still are working in the weather community. So tell us about your journey. I know you have some ties to, uh, North Carolina. So, uh, tell us uh, about your journey from uh, your college days up until uh, your forecasting there at the Space Weather Prediction Center. Okay. Uh, the long story of Rob. Well, it started probably uh, during the um, super outbreak in 1974. I was nine years old and under a workbench in my father's basement with my mother and my brothers. Uh, my father was a volunteer firefighter, so they were out during that storm. Um, but, uh, that left a really indelible impression on me. I was a young kid and, and, and it was just amazing. Um, another time I got caught out on my bicycle, um, and, uh, pinned down in a, in a downburst that, uh, ended up pushing me into hedges and, uh, actually <laughs> some passerby had to rescue me. So, uh, I was kind of always in awe of that in high school. Uh, they built a weather service office in Columbus near the airport and I was riding my bicycle past there. And uh, saw the radome, and I thought, this looks like an interesting building. So I just walked in. And uh, that was back in the days when you could just walk in. And uh, one of the meteorologists there, one of the Met techs, took me under their wing and kind of showed me around and said, this is a weather office, and here's what we do. And uh, I was pretty much hooked after that. Uh, Went in the Air Force, uh, did a 23-year career. Uh, During that time, 
I got my undergraduate degree at NC State, um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, my in-laws lived in North Carolina, so uh, it was a it was a good a good deal uh, to be out there, and I really enjoyed it. Um, from there, uh, went out back out into the regular Air Force, and uh, ended up in a lot of different places, including Baghdad. Um, when I got back from uh, Baghdad, my choices were either go back to Baghdad again um, or go to grad school. And grad school sounded less dangerous at the time, uh, so I chose that option. I was fortunate enough to get selected and uh, went to grad school and did uh, applied physics with an emphasis in space weather and uh, ionospheric disturbances. From there, the Air Force said, well, now you know that, be our liaison to the Space Weather Prediction Center. And I've been there uh, since 2007 with a brief interruption when I went to work for NASA's Space Radiation Analysis Group uh, between 2009 and 2010. Uh, so, and that was just an incredible, uh, incredible experience as well. So that's it in a nutshell. It's very interesting, very interesting path. Um, so a lot of folks, uh, me included, uh, you know, I knew that we had a space weather division, but. Um, I don't really know what you do from day to day. So my first question to you as, as we open up the interview is, uh, tell us about what your daily work routine is. I mean, what, what do you guys, um, what are you guys looking at? What, what's the, uh, the process there in Boulder, Colorado? Okay. So it's, uh, in a lot of respects, it's very much like a, a weather forecast office. Uh, we have two forecasters on duty, uh, generally around the clock. Sometimes we have gaps during solar minimum, uh, where we are now. Uh, but these two forecasters uh, are focused on our nearest star, uh, the sun, and events taking place on the sun that have a potential to impact Earth. Uh, so our day begins uh, with an analysis of the current state of the sun and whether any eruptions have been observed, whether there are any sunspots, how large and complex they are, um, whether there are any other features called coronal holes, uh, which provide high-speed solar wind streams. Um, so very much like weather forecasting, um, you start with an analysis, you gain an understanding of the current situation, and then you move towards a forecast. Um, so we, one forecaster is primarily devoted to our routine products. We have two forecasts that go out every day, along with the forecast discussion. Additionally, we have a variety of other summary uh, and forecast products available uh, on our website that meet the needs of our different uh, constituents. On the other side of the weather station um, is the forecaster concerned primarily with data receipt and transmission, uh, product transmission, and alerts, watches, and warnings. Uh, so that's kind of our, our nowcaster. Um, and they'll take care of monitoring the data. Uh, we provide data to uh, scientists, uh, industry, and academia all over the world. Um, for instance, our GOES data, the X-ray data, um, provides information uh, for a lot of different applications. And yeah, we that's. Primarily, we have other uh, periodic things that we do. We publish a weekly summary of space weather events um, on Monday, um, and that takes some compilation of the past uh, past events. Uh, for all the folks who calibrate WSR-88Ds, the um, 
Doppler weather radars, they'll call us looking for solar flux because when they do their solar bore site, they need to know uh, what the solar flux at 10 centimeters is going to be and uh, adjust accordingly for that. So we'll get calls from them as well. So, so Rob, as we transition into to, to our, our our conversation tonight, in regular weather, the atmosphere, you have to have certain ingredients uh, to get showers, thunderstorms, snow per se. Uh, what are those ingredients uh, that are required in space weather? What are what are some of the things? I know you mentioned the sun. What are what are the things that you're looking for? Uh, the ingredients per se for space weather. So the things that we look for um, to produce a solar event. Um, the sun has three things that, that are needed and, and which is why our sun um, produces space weather and other stars don't necessarily produce it. Um, you need magnetic fields. Um, the sun generates magnetic fields, strong magnetic fields that then are pushed up through the solar surface, through the photosphere via convection. And as they emerge through the photosphere, these magnetic fields can become twisted because the sun rotates uh, differentially. It rotates faster at the equator than it does at the poles. And so these magnetic field lines can become twisted by that differential rotation. And if you twist them up enough, they break. Uh, it's just like I, I have the analogy of, you know, if you twist a rubber band long enough, it'll break. Um, and when these break and reconnect, that reconnection then can release energy. Um, and that's a solar flare. And it releases energy across the electromagnetic spectrum. So that's the first piece of space weather that we're looking for, are solar flares. Um, the next piece uh, you can get, in addition to the electromagnetic uh, burst, you can get a burst of energetic particles, protons, and other particles that can be um, accelerated out into interplanetary space. And those particles can reach Earth, depending on where the eruption occurs, they can reach Earth in minutes to hours. Um, and those pose a threat to satellites and astronauts. And then finally, the last piece of the puzzle, uh, when you have those reconnection events, and it doesn't necessarily have to be associated with a flare, there are other, other circumstances that can lead to this type of eruption called a coronal mass ejection or a CME. Uh, the CME uh, moves out into space. I like, I like to call it interplanetary projectile vomit. Um, sometimes it's aimed at Earth. And uh, when it is, it carries its own magnetic field with it. When that interacts with Earth's magnetic field, that's when we get geomagnetic storms. So, and those can arrive anywhere from hours, 14 to 17 hours, up to three or four days. Awesome. So I wanted to kind of transition. You're talking about those geomagnetic uh, flares and, and the storms that are associated with that. Tell us a little bit about the NOAA space weather scale and how that fits into it. Okay. So what we did, um, because people are familiar with the Saffir-Simpson hurricane scale, for instance, or the um, enhanced Fujita scale with its one through five ratings, we tried to map space weather to a similar scale uh, to allow people who are, are um, lay people or, or end users of our products to quickly assess the threat and determine what type of action they wanted to take. You know, it's one thing if I tell people that the X-ray flux is, you know, so many solar flux units, um, but it, you know, if I tell them it's an R R5, uh, that gives them a, a much easier way to understand it. So the scales run from one to five, with one being the uh, 
minor end of the scale, uh, five being the top end. Uh, and on those NOAA scales that you're displaying, this is awesome because uh, in the middle, uh, you can see descriptions of the impacts uh, that can be associated with those. And then there's also a physical measure that maps to each one. So for instance, for geomagnetic storms, we map it to the planetary K index, which is the uh, which is a measure of geomagnetic disturbance or departure from normal magnetic signatures at a particular station. We use a, several stations to produce this value. And then finally, in the last column, there's a frequency of occurrence over an 11 year solar cycle. So you can find these on our webpage and I've got the, I've got the uh, URL up there. You can find those on our webpage and uh, kind of get an idea of what types of impacts you'd see, how often these types of events occur and what they're based on. And so you've already talked about geomagnetic storms and you kind of just covered it there with the scale. Um, that's the one that I'm the most uh, aware of and I've heard of it in the past, although like Scotty said before, I'm not very in tune um, with space weather, so I'm interested to learn more. Is that what causes auroras and uh, other weather like that? Yeah, you'll see impacts um, when these come in and, and create geomagnetic storms uh, when the CMEs arrive and do that. You'll get... Um, reconnection in the magnetotail, so Earth's magnetic field, the magnetosphere, um, field lines will break and reconnect um, on the tail side and inject particles into our atmosphere along magnetic field lines. That in turn uh, interacts with our atmosphere and generates the aurora. So yes, those are the, those are the causes. Uh, a, a less severe cause of uh, aurora are called coronal holes, high-speed streams. Uh, these are uh, holes that are visible in uh, extreme ultraviolet images of the sun, uh, where the structures on the sun have been blown out and high-speed solar wind uh, interacts with Earth's magnetosphere. And those can produce kind of low-level minor geomagnetic storms, but that still generates some aurora. I, I just want to get in here a little bit too and uh, you know get into uh, some of the effects that that space weather has to us, you know, here at the surface, uh, you know, what, how can space weather affect our things? I know a lot of people talk about communications uh, being affected during solar events and, and uh, things of that nature. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think one of the best examples, because so many different pieces were uh, uh, present during this event, back in September of 2017, uh, there were some, actually the largest flares of the solar cycle at that time, uh, some X flares, those flares um, produced radio blackouts on the sunlit side of the earth. Uh, it, you, you basically slam the earth with this X-ray and EUV energy and it increases the ionization. That in turn then uh, causes absorption of high frequency radio waves. This was important because at the same time, those hurricanes were moving up through the Caribbean, uh, the ones that struck Puerto Rico, there's one affecting Mexico, and during that period, amateur radio operators, uh, in conjunction with the National Weather Service's Hurricane Center in Florida, uh, were providing warnings via HF to those islands, as well as receiving damage reports. When those flares occurred, that wiped out the communication. And because there were more than one, um, that can that can impact things for a while. Uh, typically, you have a flare like that, the effects can last for an hour or two. Um, but if you have several back-to-back, -back, that can disrupt things even more. Um, and this affected not only uh, 
amateur radio operators, but also emergency managers. Um, so that was that was one example. Now, in addition to that, we had a particle event, a solar proton event, um, and a radio burst. I see you got the radio burst slide up. So when you have radio burst activity, um, if that occurs near a frequency that we use um, for uh, GPS, for instance, in this case, um, a radio burst can overwhelm uh, the GPS signal because the GPS signal is very weak. And consequently, um, you lose GPS. And that can then have a ripple effect because you, you can imagine how many things depend on GPS, including uh, aircraft, uh, air traffic control and tracking. Um, so this was an example of what happened. Um, we had a proton event, so high energy particles came to Earth in addition to pro providing a threat to uh, astronauts and spacecraft. They can also follow those magnetic field lines right to the poles, and uh, they can create a situation called D-region absorption, which again um, causes radio blackouts in the polar regions. And those, unlike the uh, flares, those D-region absorption events can last for days. The consequence there is air traffic has to be routed around uh, the poles because they need to be able to communicate via HF as they go over uh, north of 80 degrees north. Um, and you know, so it's a ripple effect. Now the airlines are looking at more fuel costs, so they're interested in when is this thing going to end so we can start flying the polar routes again. Right, right. And, and that goes also for uh, your transatlantic flights because uh, once you leave out of Gander's airspace, you're on HF all the way to uh, Shannon in Ireland. So yep. that's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. And uh, I guess to follow up also, I, I hope I didn't cut you off, but uh, yep. you know, what kind of effect does that, does that have on animals? Um, well, there's a, <laughs> there's a couple. The, the most common one uh, that we're aware of is uh, its effect on racing pigeons. Um, because racing pigeons use the geomagnetic field as part of their navigation system. When the geomagnetic field is disrupted, racing pigeons get lost. Um, and it doesn't have to be a very big disruption. Actually, it's really actually a little below the G1 scale, a little below a minor geomagnetic storm. Uh, KP of four will actually uh, start to disrupt them. Um, so pigeon racers will actually look at the current and predicted state of the geomagnetic field before releasing their pigeons and having a race. Um, I didn't know this, but pigeons can cost thousands of dollars. And uh, nobody wants to toss their $1,000 pigeon in the air to have it never return. Um, and the last update I got on current pigeon prices was uh, one that had sold for a quarter of a million dollars. So they're like thoroughbred stallions in pigeon form. Wow, that's something I had no idea was even a, a thing. <laughs> I didn't either until I started working there. <laughs> wow, now I'll kick it over to Megan now. Hey, how's it going? I yes. just want to jump in and ask about the solar storm of 2012. I've heard it's uh, it was ranked as a pretty dangerous solar storm, but it's described as a near miss by NASA. So what happened then? Okay, so in July of 2012, and I it was great because I was working a shift when that thing happened. I was I was working the forecast desk. There was an extremely uh, large uh, coronal mass ejection. Uh, associated with a region that had rotated, just rotated off the Earth-facing side of the sun. So the sun rotates every 27 days, and if you're looking at it, it rotates from left to right. So it rotates around every 27 days. So as it's rotating, the, the spot region that produced that uh, CME had rotated off the limb, so it had gone around and was no longer pointing towards Earth. Fortunately, however, it was pointing towards uh, NASA spacecraft called Stereo A. 
the stereo spacecraft A and B were launched uh, to study the sun uh, from angles other than just the the uh, er along the Earth sun line. Um, so it really gave us some insight into some of the other events. So fortunately, it was sitting there while the CME blasted by, and the magnitude of this event um, was such that it, it rivaled uh, many of the storms that we'd seen in the past. And I see on the slide here, you've got another one from 2017. So yeah, we had, we had events both in 2012 and 2017 uh, that had they been directed at Earth, uh, would have been a, a significant uh, event. Rob, Rob, just b before we, can you talk about like when you say it hits Earth in a, a significant effect? What what would, if one of these was to happen? What I mean, what would we see? What what would be some of the issues? So, for large, extreme solar events, for ones that we don't see uh, often, but we have it, records of either from. Uh, spacecraft like stereo or looking back through time back to 1859 we have at magnetometer records um, those type of storms can produce impacts like uh, pushing the aurora further south um, to cuba uh, for instance it can cause disruptions in the uh, power grid so when these storms interact with earth and bring their magnetic field with them. Depending on the orientation of that magnetic field, it can produce significant fluctuations. And those fluctuations then induce current on power lines. Big, long, you know, you, you stick a fluctuating magnetic current or magnetic field over top of a, a big piece of wire and you get current induced. And that current then can cause problems for the power operators. In 1989, a storm like that caused a blackout in the northeastern US uh, and Quebec. Um, and that lasted nine hours. Um, on the screen now, you can see a picture of uh, geoelectric field models. What we're, we work closely with the power providers uh, to try and mitigate the effects of this and give them good information about uh, what the impacts might be in their region. And it turns out the impacts are not just related to the strength of the storm that hits us, but it's also related to the underlying geology. So a critical component of that is knowing what the geology is like under those power lines because the conductivity of the, uh, of the rock really plays into it. And so magnetometers on the ground and surveys that tell us about the conductivity are, are critical components uh, to be able to provide information to the power uh, industry. Well, one thing to kind of follow up on that, and then I, I think um, Jared's got something. Do you guys, do you, do you all work, um, maybe even with NASA or something, to work with these power companies and, and kind of say, you know, is there a plan, I guess is what I'm saying, is there a plan if, if this was to happen with, with power companies on, on what they may be doing next if, if we do see these big blackouts and things? Absolutely. Um, and in fact, uh, legislation that was um, put forth and some uh, executive orders during the previous administration uh, set us on a path of uh, something called the Space Weather Operations Research and Mitigation um, Effort or SWARM. And uh, as part of that effort, we work closely with both NASA, uh, people in academia, academia and uh, FEMA to understand the magnitude of the problem, 
You know, what's what's the worst that could happen? What's the biggest storm? Um, and then to try and start laying in plans um, to mitigate those effects, to prepare for something like that. Um, and that has continued into this administration. So we're continuing to work uh, closely with those folks. And right now, the way it works, when a CME happens on the sun, we can observe it uh, about hours, 17 hours for the fast ones, out to three days out. We can see, you know, so we can provide lead time to the utilities. And then with that lead time, we'll issue a watch and we'll say, hey, we think this thing's going to happen. And then they can start to make plans. They can do things like defer maintenance. They can do things like uh, shift their load or uh, ratchet down some of their production or, or ratchet it up in other places. Um, so there are, are uh, absolutely ways to, um, to deal with this. Um, and we work closely with those folks to, uh, to try and do that. But NASA has been one of our partners um, and a, a long-term partner uh, in building uh, tools to understand the impacts and uh, ways to mitigate it and improve our forecasts. Rob, you know, you're talking about how you're monitoring that and how you're able to issue, issue watches. You know, I'm curious, you know, we got very excited, us Earthling meteorologists, very excited about GOES-R, the GOES-R series with the ABI and the GLM, um, Geostationary Lightning Mapper and the Advanced Baseline Imager. But there's some tools on board that should help you guys. Absolutely. Uh, for for quite a while, these uh, GOES spacecraft have been outfitted with instruments that provide information for space weather forecasters and their end users. Uh, those things include uh, tools to monitor the x-ray flares on the sun, help inform our decisions uh, for alerts, watches, and warnings, uh, as well as help us make better forecasts. The, um, for instance, the x-ray sensor allows us to issue the warnings and alerts for radio, or actually just be alerts for the radio blackouts. The particle sensor lets us issue the space radiation alerts. And finally, the um, magnetometer helps us understand uh, when a coronal mass ejection has reached Earth. That's interesting stuff. Um, so I'm gonna ask a possibly incorrect question that I heard on um, uh, something I read on Twitter the other day. Was there just recently a solar flare uh, projected towards Earth? Uh, we had a, there was a small flare. So we're in the bottom of the solar cycle. Again, that runs over 11 years. Uh, we're sitting in solar minimum, but that doesn't rule out events. Um, and we had a, uh, in a sea flare, which is not, it doesn't, that doesn't even make it onto uh, the radio blackout scale. So it was a very small event, but it did produce a coronal mass ejection. And the coronal mass ejection, uh, we have tools to evaluate uh, and parameterize it. And then to inject that parameterization into a numerical model that uh, gives us an output about what the expected arrival time is. Um, the tricky thing about those is you're using white light imagery. Um, you're depending on on the instrumentation uh, to capture the essence of this thing. And depending on how it departs and what the features are, uh, they can be hard to parameterize. And if you're off on any of that, 
then the CME might not arrive. Uh, we expected from that particular one uh, to get a glancing blow. So it wasn't going to be a dead-on hit straight onto Earth, but we did expect to catch some edge of it, which can usually produce a little bit of disruption. We did have some... Um, we did we did uh, detect it in our in our uh, magnetometer data at the L1 Lagrange point. So we have a satellite about one one hundredth of the weight of the sun um, that acts like a buoy for us out in the ocean. And when these things pass, we can get data um, and try and understand it. And so it did have a, a decent magnetic signature that would have suggested uh, some good impacts at Earth, but Fortunately, most of it passed uh, actually ahead of our orbit, so it was a miss. That's really interesting, Rob, and I am um, kind of playing on that and predicting when uh, radiation is going to reach Earth. I was wondering if you could comment on how uh, forecasting space weather could potentially play into scheduling manned space travel or launching um, other satellites and such into space and how you can protect your uh, detection equipment that you launch into space from uh, radiation from the sun. Okay. Um, so yeah, the radiation environment definitely plays into it. Um, for instance, prior to launch, uh, they'll check with us about the radiation levels, both current and predicted, uh, because if you're launching a spacecraft, if you launch it during a radiation event, there's a chance you might not be able to command it. You may, uh, you may lose that ability. Uh, you may get something called a single event upset or, uh, or a lockup that, that causes an issue. Um, and we've seen this before in spacecraft. We've lost spacecraft because of space radiation storms. Um, similarly, we've, we've, uh, you know, we've had issues occasionally um, aboard the space station. Uh, they've noticed some anomalies. So that's one way uh, by getting into the electronics and disrupting things there um, during launch um, or during uh, insertion into orbit. Uh, another situation occurs while they're on orbit. Um, spacecraft can be affected. So again, if there's a if there's a situation where we expect energetic particles, they may delay sending up commands, you know, if they can defer maintenance and things like that. And then finally, uh, when you're talking about human spaceflight, the astronauts, um, when I was at NASA, we dealt mostly with the shuttle and the, uh, the ISS. And in those cases, um, when we had a particle event, you'd want to do things like uh, be smart about where you did your extravehicular activity. Um, you wouldn't want to be doing extravehicular activity, for instance, during a strong space radiation event, um, because that can the uh, crews aboard the ISS, the astronauts, are considered radiation workers. So they have a lifetime dose they can get, and after that, they can't go into space anymore. So you don't want to mint a brand new astronaut, send them into space, only to have them out for <laughs> one adventure and then never go into space again. Uh, so we work closely with the folks at, the, at NASA's Space Radiation Analysis Group at Johnson Space Center uh, in order to provide them the latest information uh, to help their decision makers decide, you know, are we going to do an EVA? Uh, in extreme events, you know, do the astronauts need to move to an another part of the space station that's more well shielded? For exploration flights outside Earth's atmosphere, it gets even more interesting because now we're looking at... Uh, 
losing the protection of Earth's magnetosphere. We're going to be outside the magnetosphere, so we're going to be exposed not only to the uh, solar particle events, the proton events, but also galactic cosmic rays. And for long missions, you know, that pre presents a significant hazard. Um, and that's one of the biggest challenges uh, to interplanetary travel is just determining how we're going to deal uh, with that type of uh, environment. Humans weren't necessarily built uh, to be in that kind of environment for long periods of time. Um, and then uh, something else I was thinking of just in the in passing with that, but uh, yeah, it slipped my mind. So uh, maybe I'll come back up in my head. All right. Is there any more questions before we kind of conclude the interview? Actually, yeah, I want to ask okay, one more. Go ahead, Evan. Um, so, Robbie mentioned the satellite that's one one hundredth of the way between here and the sun. How does that stay there? Well, what's awesome about that, it's in a place called a, a Lagrange point. And the Lagrange point is a place, I, I like to think of it as an interplanetary parking space. Um, it's a place where the balance of forces is such that you need very little fuel uh, to keep a satellite in position. Uh, and there's, uh, there's a few of those. The other one we're looking at is L5, which is if you're staring at the sun. Don't do that, by the way. It hurts. Um, but if you're looking at the sun, it would be to the left um, off the Earth-Sun line. Um, and having a spacecraft there would allow us to get... Um, kind of stereoscopic view of these coronal mass ejections, similar to what stereo provided. Um, but that's, yeah, that's what, uh, that's what keeps it there. Balance of forces at the L L1 Lagrange point. Very little be, fuel has to be used. I gotta say, I have a lot of appreciation for uh, the physicists that figured that out. That's impressive. <laughs> it is. Well, Rob, um, as we finish up our interview here, what, what are the future plans for um, the Space Weather Prediction Center. What are the things that you guys are working towards maybe in the next year or so, maybe five, ten years down the road? Well, there's so many different things that are going on. Um, I mentioned the geoelectric field model. We're continuing to refine that to be able to uh, give the uh, bulk power industry information that's relevant to them and uh, and that they can insert into their models of the, of the grid. Um, Really, I mean, this is kind of the golden age for space weather in a lot of ways. Just like meteorology went through a, a transformation when numerical modeling started to be introduced, we're kind of at the, at, at the beginning steps of that. Maybe in the past couple decades, you know, we're really starting to get into it. And so what I expect to see in the future and what we're continuing to work towards is improved numerical modeling, uh, improved full physics models of the heliosphere. It's a complicated place. It's big and there aren't a lot of observations. Um, getting more observations out there. Um, and just in, in uh, near term, uh, we're working to provide uh, enhanced support uh, to the International Civil Aviation Organization and the airlines there uh, through a variety of products tailored to their needs um, and requirements that they've provided us. So there's a, there's a, a ton of stuff going on. I mean, it's for me, it's really exciting. After after being in meteorology and watching the uh, progression from the 80s through now, um, you know, it was getting harder and harder for me to add value to forecasts on a daily basis. Um, but in space weather, uh, we're still kind of in new territory, um, and there's a lot to learn and a lot of contributions to be made. So it's it's pretty exciting.
Well, Rob, if uh, folks are wanting to follow you or, or the weather, uh, Space Weather Prediction Center, uh, what are some of the best ways? Social media is our website. How how can they do that? We yeah we have um, we have a website, and uh, I had the URL up there earlier. That's a more complex what uh, URL. The easiest one is just www.spaceweather.gov spaceweather.gov that's our website we also have accounts on uh, twitter and facebook um, and i believe it starts with swpc for space weather prediction center and the link should be on our page as well um, and that page is is a great place to kind of get up to speed on what's going on um, and then you can see all the different types of uh, products and things we have there um, yeah it's it's a good resource and then uh yeah, so those those three avenues, I think, for, for your listeners uh, would probably be the best way, through our webpage and through Facebook and Twitter. Awesome. Well, Rob, we certainly appreciate your time. Stick around uh, with us if you want to. Uh, we're going to go to a quick break right now. It's talking about space. We're going to be talking about the SpaceX program and how uh, they are helping us get back to the International Space Station. Ten, awesome. Thanks. Nine, eight, seven. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition, lift off. Vehicle is pitching downrange. action now as we see stage one coming back down towards earth stage two still making its way up into outer space the dragon still nestled on top getting ready stage one entry burn and shut down to, uh, the 1000 meter or kilometer range from the international space station view on the left from dragon is not the center line camera it's actually the forward media camera range is nine and a half and decreasing vehicle is centered largest excursion observed is less than half a meter and there it is there's that center line camera view that the crew in the international space station is using you can hear the cheers behind us at uh, SpaceX headquarters in Hawthorne, California. We have confirmation of a soft capture of the Dragon spacecraft to the International Space Station. And we have motion. You see Dragon physically separating from the International Space Station, 1.32 a.m. Central Time, the International Space Station, 253 statue miles over Sedan. First of two parachute deployments. Next up, stand, standing by for splashdown. And there we have confirmation of splashdown. Dragon has returned to planet Earth. It is now back home. And you can see on your screen our two fast boats racing out to the capsule, now in recovery. That splashdown came right on time, 5.45 a.m. Pacific, 8.45 a.m. over on the East Coast. 
The teams that have been ready and waiting, they were staged just a few nautical miles away. They're going to start moving in now. You can see those two fast approach boats already speeding their way towards the capsule. Crewed missions, as we've said, the landing zone is only going to be a couple hours ride away from port. And that's just so SpaceX can quickly get those returning astronauts back to dry land where things are a little bit stable. And after you've been in microgravity for about six months, your feet <laughs> will probably appreciate that. Uh, so once Dragon is seated and you can hear some cheers behind me uh, as the remaining folks that we have here on the SpaceX team outside of Mission Control uh, are cheering with the placement of Dragon into the nest there, as you can see. So some pretty cool things going on in space, and uh, we kind of tied that in with what Rob was talking about tonight. Uh, for now, we're going to go to our news segment. Not a lot of news uh, here in the Carolinas this week. We're obviously going to talk about the, uh, the recovery efforts of the severe weather outbreak that affected much of the southeast a couple weekends ago. But, uh, James, we did have one little bit of uh, newsworthy stuff going on in Washington, D.C. today as they were talking about flood insurance. And mm -hmm. uh, one of South Carolina's own uh, flood insurance folks was uh, speaking before uh, the House today. Yep, it was a Senate committee hearing or a congressional committee hearing in Washington, D.C. We streamed a good portion of it until Facebook went down, but hopefully you caught it on our YouTube or your Periscope feeds. Uh, we did have a state rep there from South Carolina. We're talking about the National Flood Insurance Program, which is due to be reauthorized in May. So they're meeting right now to debate what will go into this reauthorization, whether or not they're going to make any changes from the current program. And one of the things that we noted in the coverage, I uh, read a piece earlier today from The Hill, uh, is that a recent audit found that only about 42% of the maps that they use to uh, judge flood insurance in this program to get a sense of what areas might flood, only 42% appear to be accurate. And you actually heard a conversation about this today in Washington, talking about the importance of this GIS data, this mapping data, and the role it plays. Take a listen. That's my face again. Let's try this one more time. Take two. Uh, so YouTube was down last night and Facebook was down earlier today and it appears my video clip is currently down. Um, <laughs> uh, are you sure there's no solar flare going on right now, Rob? There's something that's affecting all this social media. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do get those questions. <laughs> third, terms, third time is a charm, right? Let's try it one more time. The, the chair. So I want to talk about data. Right, because uh, we have within counties, we have within uh, parts of our government, uh, precise data. We have climate data that's collected. So, Mr. Amara, um, within we already have this massive amount of data used by uh, with taxpayer dollars collected. Right. So, what kind of data would be helpful to make public to to for us to have really good governance, but also have a better understanding of the risks that we're facing. And, and, and from your footprint as a former regulator, if you could speak to that. Yeah, look, this is one of those areas where I think just full transparency is important. And I think having as much property level data as possible, not just the generalizations across a watershed or a subwatershed or, you know, at a, at a higher topographic level. I mean, you want data, you know, a couple meters. I mean, you want data really down and you want equal amounts of financial information. And frankly, your state of North Carolina does this better than anybody. You go on the website, you look up your parcel, you see where you are in the floodplain, you see what the risks are, you see what the options are for financial coverage, you see what the options are for um, So our for county mitigation. GIS systems actually incorporate the floodplain into that county level property level data exactly. 
So at the county level, um, we actually have where that physical premises is that will be the cost driver of a, of a flood. Is that not readily available in other jurisdictions? It's, uh, it's completely uneven across the country. And most okay. of it's coming from local jurisdictions more than from the federal level. So, so tell me what that should be then. As a, as a policymaker, what, what should I be driving for? You should be driving for property level data that's publicly accessible, that lays out a combination of the, kind of the geotechnical information about elevation and kind of risk for the floodplain, but then also financial information and link it together. So there's a one-stop shop. You can go to one location and get all the information you need to make a wise decision for your family. And actually asking that question there, uh, Scotty tells me as a local representative from Western North Carolina, Patrick McHenry. And so you could hear a little bit of that conversation on the importance of that data. And again, uh, actually testifying today, uh, Maria Cox from South Carolina, who heads up is the coordinator there for the National Flood Insurance Program, was there speaking on behalf of residents from her state as well, too. So a Carolina connection today in that hearing about the flood insurance program, once again, up for reauthentication or uh, starting in May. So we'll we'll see exactly what becomes of that. Uh, last week's show was dedicated entirely to talking about the tornadoes that we saw in western Alabama and eastern Georgia had that backwards that was western georgia and eastern alabama and uh we talked a little bit with wrbl's chief meteorologist bob jeswald about the recovery efforts going on in that greater columbus area and we actually are going to now check in with uh wrbl news 3 one more time out of columbus they sent us a package that they said we could share with you today just yesterday the students in lee county in the Beauregard community returned to school after that tornado and we wanted to share this piece with you well, Lee County teachers and staff welcome back students after the tornado swept through, causing major destruction and devastation to the region. News 3's Jamisha Lyde has more on how students and staff were feeling on their first day back at school. It's been a little over a week since the tornado ripped through Lee County. Today, students and teachers had to move forward by returning to school after that tornado took the lives of 23 individuals. A symbol of peace was high in the sky this morning as Beauregard students headed back to school. Good morning. Smiles and hugs were given to the elementary students before starting their lessons in the classroom. Everybody wants to take care of our school and help our children, so um, we just have a strong faculty, and we're gonna we're gonna be strong together. The high school students were in good spirits, being reunited with close teachers and friends. Getting the kids back in the school, back on the routine, uh, we think that'll be the best. Kind of medicine farm. A candlelight vigil was held for the tornado victims prior to going back to school. Counselors were available for all students who needed extra support. Have a great day. They don't want to talk. Some may not want to talk. Um, then we're not going to encourage them to do that. It'll be on their timing. The tornado left a hole in many people's hearts. Though the tragedy can never be changed, the community continues to stand Beauregard strong. It's brought our community together. And uh, we're just going to move forward. It's going to take a little while, but we'll, we'll get there. Reporting in Beauregard, I'm Jamisha Lyde, WRBL News 3. And so many of you donated online or maybe in person in the Columbus area. And WRBL News 3, along with PNB Broadcasting, were accepting donations to help those communities recover. And as of this afternoon, we're happy to report they've raised over $67,000 to help those affected by the devastating tornadoes. You can still donate. We have the link on our website, carolinaweathergroup.com. Scotty, let's bring in back the panel for tonight's weather roundtable discussion. We'll do that. And you guys know I'm a sports fan, so I will say the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, donated $1,000 or yeah, $100,000 to Auburn University 
uh, to help the folks there who uh, suffered from the uh, the tornado. So again, we're thinking about everyone and hopefully they're uh, starting to uh, get the pieces back together and getting back to a normal life. So I uh, will say this, I wanted to apologize about last week. I know we were so crazy last week. Uh, we had put so much time and attention and effort into that show that I totally forgot to mention. Uh, this is National Weather Podcast Month, so I apologize for that. Uh, we just had so much going on last night or last week that it slipped my mind. But uh, this month is a, a National Weather Podcast Month, so um, ourselves, along with several other podcasts, uh, weather podcast groups, uh, Stormfront Freaks, Weather Brains, uh, Weather Hype, uh, just to name a few. Uh, are uh, doing a kind of an awareness of weather podcasts. So we uh, ask you to check out weatherpodcastmonth.com. Uh, you can Google it and uh, I would send you to their Facebook page, but we know Facebook's down right now. But so the best thing is just to uh, Google weather podcast month uh, and it'll pop up uh, all the different podcasts that are, are uh, participating and kind of a schedule and a rundown of uh, the uh, upcoming shows for this month. So uh, please, uh, go out and uh, watch Weather Brains and Storefront Freaks and all the other ones uh, during the uh, Weather Podcast Month. And I'm going to bring in Chris Jackson because, Chris, you actually represented us last week on the Stormfront Freaks, and I think they had you talking a little bit about your adventures of storm chasing, and to kind of parlay that into it, you went storm chasing over the weekend uh, again uh, in the uh, the South. Yeah, it, yeah Scott, it makes, uh, gosh, it makes like four storm chases in like a month and a half that's all been in the Mississippi area. Uh, so, you know, those folks have been getting hit pretty na uh, pretty nasty. And, uh, you know, thinking about everybody, especially down in Lee County in Alabama uh, with the, you know, the deadly EF4 tornado. But, uh, yeah, this past weekend, chased again. Another chase in Mississippi that ended up in – I ended up in Tennessee there for a short while. But uh, long story short, uh, went over to Oxford, uh, put my little forecast together and felt really good about it and uh, thought storms would form in northern Mississippi Um early in the day and, and that's what happened. And they were able to actually interact with uh, some upper level features that were uh, moving through the area, actually produced a, a EF zero tornado that I was less than a mile from right behind it as it approached Faulkner, uh, Mississippi. And it eventually moved up into Tennessee and the storm motion started to get really fast, uh, you know, over 50 knots. And there's just no way you can keep up with storms like that. So I went back down South and, uh, I, you know, called another, two storms before it got dark and uh, then headed back home. So, uh, you know, another tornado for this year, uh, you know, 2019 starting off pretty busy, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a busy few weeks. I know, uh, you know, just with that chase this weekend, it was uh, 1,468 miles over not even two days. Chris, I will say this. I know you saw your close tornadoes, but you got some amazing lightning photos out of this trip. That was pretty cool. And we've got one showing up right now, but and you've been on it with these lightning shots lately. Yeah, I, I got to give credit on uh, Mike Blinsky. You know, I got to meet him out in Nebraska last year, and we, we chatted for a minute. And, and he's put some great uh, videos on YouTube, uh, you know, about how to capture better lightning and stuff. And, you know, just trying to compose shots better and uh, be really set up for it. And thankfully, the, the topography in central Mississippi was really nice, uh, you know, for that storm this weekend. And uh, was able to set the camera up and had a great, you know, classic supercell with a nice wall cloud, little funnel cloud there. And, and some great, there were, there were a lot of positive strikes coming out of that storm. You know, the positive lightning bolts, you, really big. They last, you know, upwards almost to a second, it seems like, you know, uh, those, those lightning bolts are, are just massive in comparison to a you know, negatively charged uh, lightning bolts. 
So trying to get there, working on it. Well, talking about tornadoes, last night, uh, I'm sure if you were looking on Twitter, if you're a weather follower, that is, uh, some tornadoes out in New Mexico and Texas, and that was spawned from a big storm system. Funny enough, uh, this time uh, back in 1993, most of you in the southeast remember the blizzard of 93, the superstorm of 93. Uh, it's kind of got some uh, different names to it, but it uh, produced a lot of snow and a lot of wind on the east coast. And so a couple of years, well, 2019, now we're talking about another uh, major storm system. This time it's out over the uh, the uh, plains, the Great Plains over in Colorado, uh, places like that, or Nebraska and Kansas, all seeing a lot of snow. And Chris, uh, you were seeing, uh, sent us some pictures earlier today in our little uh, our group chat here of uh, just some major winds going on out in the Plain States. Yeah, absolutely, Scotty. And you know, with this, uh, what's causing this entire system is a, a big negatively tilted trough that you know really started. Just a lot over western Texas and New Mexico, uh, which helped aid the development of a surface low. And it just happens, you know, the way it's working out, it's a really strong surface low. And uh, earlier today, uh, Colorado Springs Airport recorded a gust of 97 miles an hour. And, and I think DIA up in Denver, Denver, uh, Denver International Airport, I think they had a gust of 80 or a little higher than that. And um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just gusts coming from everywhere, you know, over 60, 70 miles an hour. Last night, the severe weather event in eastern New Mexico, I, I've seen a couple of videos. There was one big wedge tornado. There was another uh, classic stovepipe tornado, um, and which turned into a linear system. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, it depends on how they look at it, uh, derecho. They moved all the way across uh, Texas from, from the New Mexico border all the way through the Dallas Metroplex early this morning and uh, just tons and tons of wind damage. And uh, actually over in New Mexico today, there was a train that was derailed, about 25 cars just from wind damage. Uh, you know, the winds, I believe the train was crossing a, a, a trestle and the, the straight line winds just pushed the train off the track. So yeah, this, this storm is no joke. There was, there was some video surfaced uh, out of Amarillo, Texas of a transfer truck uh, that got blown over as it was traveling down Interstate 40. Rob, I'll bring you back in because I know you're – uh, in the midst of all of this, you talked a little bit about it uh, at the start of the show, but we're going to ask you to put your meteorologist hat back on, your weather meteorologist hat back on, and uh, kind of talk about the effects that you guys have seen there in Colorado. Okay. Well, uh, in my neck of the woods, it was, you know, we had a uh, significant drop in visibility. Uh, we had winds here uh, to probably gusting to 50s, mid to upper 50 mile per hour. Um but combined with the snow, it uh, led to some pretty treacherous conditions. Uh, we didn't have any trees down here, but we did have outages. Uh, I know in Denver, they did have some trees down. Uh, as it moved out to the east, uh, across the eastern plains, uh, much of the roadways were closed. Uh, there were a lot of rescues happening for people who had been stranded in cars. Some people had been there uh, stranded since uh, 10 a.m. this morning, and it was, you know, they'd been in their cars for six hours uh, waiting for help. So uh, those type of things are going on. There were some, there was one gentleman who was um, stranded, but, uh, and he was in contact with them, but the visibility was so poor because out on the plains, you know, it was gusting up in the 70s and 80s. They couldn't see him. They couldn't find him. Um, and this, uh, there was a, an incident that happened, this reminded me of an incident that happened on the Eastern Plains of Colorado back in the 30s, uh, where a similar storm in 1931 uh, trapped a bunch of school children in a school bus. And uh, 
it 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 was a uh, an amazing story of survival. Um, not all of them made it, but uh, it was just incredible. And you think about 1930s and you know what <laughs> technology they had back then. It was it was just something else. It was, and I sent a tweet over. James is going to share it on our screen. Um, the national media, uh, you know, if you watch the evening news this evening, you may have heard bomb cyclones, snowmageddon, snowcane, whatever the case may be. The uh, Denver Police Department, they were a little, they jumped the gun a little bit. They were talking about how uh, the storm really wasn't impressive. Well, uh, that tweet did not age very well. <laughs> not at all. An hour or two after hours after that, uh, things really stepped up. So uh, I, I think the Denver Police Department probably wishes they could delete that tweet. But again, a very uh, serious snow event taking place uh, in Colorado. And talking about snow, our man Evan Fisher, he is getting ready to go on spring break next week, and he's going to be heading out to Colorado. But Evan, you actually have your eyes on something that may be coming to the Carolinas a little bit down the road. Yeah, so we're looking at a, a pretty classic March setup possible uh, around mid to late week next week, uh, looking like an upper level low will be moving down. Um, and in the past, these late March and April storms uh, that have been associated with upper level lows have been uh, known to dump high snow totals. But primarily, this would be an upper elevation or a high elevation event. Uh, it's hard to get temperatures down in the valleys cold enough for accumulating snow. Um, so as of right now, not really expecting any snow um, where the majority of people live, maybe some novelty flurries, um, but we are pretty far out and temperatures will be pretty marginal, as you can see there, only below freezing at night. Um, so maybe a pretty snow that you can see uh, up on the mountains, but for the most part, it should be a, a, a low-key event. Yeah, I think I'm about ready uh, for the sunshine and 75 degrees and sunny skies. <laughs> I'm done with the snow. <laughs> All right, guys, I think, Chris, you may have some before we uh, kind of uh, end tonight's program. Yeah, yeah. Going back to this, uh, you know, this big blizzard moving across the Midwest. Uh, one other thing for folks to really think about is uh, think about the farmers, out, especially Nebraska, South Dakota. Um, you know, they're, they're dealing with some really rough times right now, especially uh, western Nebraska. Um I've seen a bunch of stuff today uh, with, you know, two feet of snow with snow drifts that's going to get ungodly high. Yeah, the, the Nebraska National Guard is actually preparing to do relief missions to assist farmers in feeding cattle for, for some of the ranchers out there. You know, uh, you've got farms that's well in excess of 10,000, 20,000 acres, and there's just no way for a farmer to get through that kind of those kind of conditions to feed their herd. So it looks like the National Guard is going to be sending in some Chinooks uh, once the weather improves. Uh, to assist the farmers. So that's uh, really awesome. That is. That is. So we appreciate you joining us tonight here on the Carolina Weather Group. Next week, we're also going to be talking about a little something interesting, something you may not think about. So we've been talking about severe weather awareness week over the Carolinas over the past couple of weeks. Well, next week is Tsunami Awareness Week. And you may think, well, what does the Carolinas have to do with tsunamis? Well, we're going to tell you. Next week, we have Kevin Miller on. He works for the California Emergency Management Office uh, for the state of California, but he also is an expert in his tsunamis. And uh, our good buddy from uh, the USGS, Mr. Ken Hudnut, you may remember him from our volcano show and earthquake show last year. Uh, he recommended uh, Kevin to come on our show. So next week, we're going to be talking about tsunamis and how we may need to prepare for them. They're not often uh, common here on the East Coast, but we're not out of the woods. So uh, we're going to be talking about that preparation next week. So we hope you will join us. And then the following week, 
Uh, we talked about National Weather Podcast Month. We're going to be having some guests on from other weather podcasts on our show. So uh, we look forward to the uh, next two weeks. So we hope you will join us back here again next Wednesday night on the Carolina Weather Group. From all of us here, we hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. So just uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what happened this weekend. Well, it was the ideal setup to get uh, severe weather and tornadoes uh, across from southern Alabama up into South Carolina. Uh, storm system had gone by uh, earlier, about two or three days earlier, and went off the east coast, and it left a front draped across the south uh, from central South Carolina down into southern Alabama. And that front sat there until another system came along and uh, all those uh, strong tornadoes started to form along the front. We're waiting uh, to hear more from the National Weather Service. We have a tornado warning for Aiken and Edgefield counties until 645. We had certainly very strong winds from a subtropical jet stream, which Alinu helped out a little bit with. And uh, we had very dramatic changes in air mass on either side of the front. It was very warm and humid on the south side and very cold on the north side. So the combination of the temperature contrast, the strong jet stream, and the position of the front uh, was perfect for a March tornado outbreak uh, over the southeast. As we're continuing to track a tornado warning for Lexington coming into Western Columbia Metro. Now, how many uh, tornado warnings did you, uh, your office issue? Uh, here in Columbia, we issued nine tornado warnings and uh, we verified five tornadoes. Um, five tornadoes we had were either EF1 or EF2. And where was the strongest one at? The strongest tornado we had was in uh, Edgefield County, which is uh, just north of Augusta, Georgia. Um, we had uh, winds up to 125 miles per hour with those. It was uh, almost an EF3, but just not quite. Um, tremendous amount of uh, tree damage associated with that particular tornado. Got one here now that was just issued for Aiken and Edgefield, South Carolina until 645. Uh, we have another one here over portions of uh, Orangeburg County that will continue until 615. Uh, the three tornadoes in Lexington originally, can I uh, talk a little bit about those just briefly? Sure, yeah, that was a very complex situation. Um, we actually at one point in Lexington County had a tornado spin up from the same supercell that caused the tornadoes farther to the west. I think we can all see it almost clear day here. And it's going to be right on here. Uh, and it's going to be very, very quickly approaching Red Bank. As it moved farther to the east in Lexington County and approached the Red Bank and Lexington areas, we wound up with two tornadoes on the ground at the same time for about three or four minutes, rather. Just before it got to West Columbia and it started to dissipate. However, right after that, a new tornado formed just on the other side of the river, uh, near the Riverbank Zoo in Richland County. And uh, that was uh, our fifth tornado of the day. Find the thing that's got the most number of walls between you and the outside world because we now have a tornado warning that goes into 745 and includes the Columbia metro area. And uh, finally, if you had some, some tips and, and advice to give people for, for better tornado preparation, what would you say? Well, certainly, especially right now, since uh, tornado season is really just starting around here, uh, you want to have an action plan. Um, one of the things that we preach is a ready, set, go concept. Ahead of time, understand what your general risks are, have an idea of where you would go in your house to an interior location, or if in your mobile home and you're able to get to a uh, sturdy building, um, have that plan out ahead of time. Then when, once a tornado watch is issued, then you have to be ultra aware and be 
ready to take action at any point should a warning be issued. Then finally, when the warning is issued, that's the go point, you immediately put your plan into action and go to your safe location right out the storm. If you're in this area right now, you want to be in your safe place, just like our own Melissa Griffin is in the Columbia area. 